All right, we are back post-Super Bowl edition with episode 12, Cancer and Stem Cells. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat. And this is the one and only Stem Cell Podcast. Yosef, what's up, my man? Hey, man, how are you? I'm glad we're the one and only right now. I'm sure some bootleg dudes are going to show up and try and be. But, you know, I saw, we were just talking about this, uh, Stephen Hawkins now. He's got a new show on stem cells, so... uh yeah, it's, uh, it's called the Stem Cell Universe, right? Is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, something like that. It's on the Science Channel. So I'm glad. I'm glad the public's getting uh, some awareness. The field's growing, and uh, I'm glad we're the the online presence at least. We are, and we are uh, growing steadily. Thank you to everyone out there. Please, uh, please, everybody. You know, I'm really curious, Joseph. So, guy, everybody out there, help us out. We want to know a little bit about our audience. You know, are you guys scientists? Are you your average, Are you a plumber? You know, like we're <laughs> curious to know what what our audience is like. Uh, it would also help us to to kind of gear the show a bit. So, if you wouldn't mind dropping us a line, you can email us uh, stemcellpodcast at gmail dot com. We're on Twitter at stemcellpodcast. Uh, we're on Facebook. Uh, just just drop us a line. Let us know you're out there, what you do, what you like, what you don't. Um, we have an awesome guest today. Um, another. Joseph, really true, true pioneer. He, he Sean, Dr. Sean Morrison from UT, UT Southwestern. He's just done some really awesome work, uh, helping to define uh, really what a hematopoietic stem cell is, and then subsequent work on, on neural neural crest stem cells and so forth. So that'll be really awesome. Looking forward to that in a, in a little bit. Um, what else we got? We got the, uh, I talked about it last time. We have the conference that I started last year, the next gen stem cell conference registration is open. You guys out there use the uh, code podcast. You can get a discounted registration. Come hang out with us. Come drink with us. Come learn with us. Uh, it's a really good time. Vancouver ISSCR in June registration open. So, uh, that's going to be wild. Stem cell podcast will be there. Of course. And um, I think that's it for – oh, and the ISSCR – this Sally Temple was a guest on our show, right, Yost, a couple episodes back. She mentioned she was running for vice president and vice CCR. Those ballots are now open, so go on and vote for her for vice president. And uh, I think I did my business. You got any before you kick it off? No, man. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Okay, so for the science roundup, uh, let's start off with a good J Neuro study, uh, Journal of Neuroscience. Uh, there was a study that came out this week showing that uh, docosahexaonic acid (DHA) um, is it's a polyunsaturated omega three fatty acid. Um, this this um, DHA is enriched in the outer segment of rod photoreceptors. If you guys remember from our macular degeneration uh, episode, um, and actually this has been implicated, like the deficiency of DHA, it's been implicated in um, MAC degen. And uh, so uh, the scientists showed in macaques that uh, when they fed them from birth with DHA versus non-DHA, this omega-3 fatty acid, um, that it uh, these monkeys basically from fMRI, uh, so functional magnetic resonance imaging, showing that in a resting state, the activity of the lateral gen 
nucleate nucleus and superior colliculus was less correlated uh, with that of the primary visual cortex. So basically, uh, there seems to be an effect of not having this in your diet. Um, and they showed that the monkeys could see, but there was this clear deficiency on the fMRI. So it, it could uh, uh, disrupt, uh, not having DHA could disrupt uh, the functional organization of uh uh, the visual system. So it's all that, about the lateral geniculate nucleus. You know? Yeah. I, I wake up every morning. I say that when I put my pants on one leg at a time, you're like, thank God, thank God for my lateral geniculate That's nucleus. Right. That's right. There's a, <laughs> there was a nature neuro study, uh, from, uh, Cornelius gross, uh, in Italy showing that, uh, if you have fewer microglia, uh, the sort of, what do you call them up? The cleaner uppers of the brain? Yeah, they're like the garbage, the garbage crew yeah, of the brain. Yeah, the microglia. Sanitation department. Right, they're sort ahead. of like the immune cells of the brain. Um, in mice, that uh, there was less pruning uh, when they have fewer microglia, and this resulted counterintuitively to uh, fewer synapses between neurons. So uh, Pruning is a essential process uh, in the brain development, and um, they show by uh, removing the microglia, they had uh, uh, fewer synapses and decreased uh, connectivity between brain regions. So you can find that over in Nature Neuro, um, uh, Cornelius's uh, Gross's lab, and uh, there was uh, what's our favorite journal. PNAS. PNAS, the Proceedings National Academy of Science, a study showing a link between Parkinson's disease and this pesticide called Benomil, uh, which inhibits uh, ALDH, this gene ALDH, um, which converts aldehydes to less toxic agents and and. It's, uh, this gene is expressed in dopamine neurons, and they also found that uh, uh, in a separate study, not in PNAS, but in the journal uh, Neurology, that ALDH2, this uh, this aldehyde dehydrogenase, um, it's uh, that mutants ALDH2 mutants are more susceptible to Parkinson's. So. Uh, about two to six fold increase in uh, the rates. So there seems to be, uh, you know, pesticides going with the whole pesticides and Parkinson's story. So uh, you can find that both in PNAS and uh, the journal Neurology. So cool, man. That's yeah. cool. It's scary. I, I do a lot of work, a lot of my lab now, because focuses on environmental toxins and and developmental deficits. I mean, neural deficits in particular, and uh, it's pretty pretty wild, actually, the stuff we see. So scary. Yeah, I mean, there's like a hundred thousand chemicals out there, most of which haven't been tested. So, um, yeah, we've got some more work to do there. Um, Nature Genetics uh, study from US uh, UCSD, the University, what is it, California, San Diego. San Diego, yep. Uh, scientists showing that LIS one L I S one regulates asymmetric division in hematopoietic stem cells, so blood stem cells, by controlling the orientation of the mitotic. They showed in list one knockouts that they had uh, increased asymmetric division of stem cells and therefore they had decreased di uh, uh, increased differentiation. So uh, increasing the rate of uh, so 
there's symmetric division and asymmetric division. So when you symmetrically divide, you're producing more of yourself. And these uh, list one knockouts had increased asymmetric division. So they were producing other cell types uh, instead of uh, reproducing themselves. And uh, this this is uh, basically showing that list one regulates asymmetric division in hematopoietic stem cells. So, you know, maybe... Yeah, you know, some- I read that. I read that, uh, actually, that paper. And this is a good kind of uh, topic for today's episode, which we're going to talk with Sean about with cancer. I think one of the things that they talked about that is how this signal can be linked with cancer so cancer growth, I believe. And so um, what they what, what they hope is that if you, what they show is when they eliminated list one, you could potentially inhibit cancer growth. Um, and so it basically they identified as kind of a it's a regulator protein kind of what your daughter cell inherits it's it's like a new class of molecules that could be used to target in cancer therapy so just a little uh kind of plug here for our episode on cancer stem cells or, or cancer and stem cells i should say we'll hear about that from sean later sorry man go ahead yeah and we love the mitotic spindle over here love the spindle yes, i love the spindle yes. uh nature communications boy i'm on nature today um but then again, they have cornered every market of science. So, uh, Nature Communications, uh, uh, basically a study showing that, remember HM, the uh, guy who couldn't remember and we never knew his name. He was just known as HM. Uh, he had no short-term memory due to... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, they basically cut out a region of his brain um, and therefore could never remember just meeting anybody like within 30 seconds he would forget that whatever event had just happened so he died and they uh, sectioned his brain they actually videotaped the whole sectioning and it's all on nature communications website and they showed that the hippocampus was in fact disconnected confirming that is involved in learning and memory so um, yeah HM it's tragic that he died and what happened to him but he's really helped us all uh, understand what's going on in memory formation in uh, humans so uh, you could check that out on Nature Communications website. Um, there's a science paper. There's a whole bunch of DNA studies coming out on Neanderthals. So it turns out uh, the Neanderthals are about 2 to 4% of the modern human genome. And uh, compared to the rest of the genome, it's largely missing from uh, genes involved with uh, uh, the testes or the X chromosome. So Outside of sex, there's still kind of a big player in uh, human, in the human genome. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. There's a lot of stuff coming out uh, with the sequencing of like random tooth or bone that they found in a cave somewhere. So uh, all that stuff is coming to fruition. Uh, wow. a, yeah, the DNA sequencing. It's it's amazing how much of our you know, remnants of those guys. Who was out there back in the hominid days just making out with Neanderthals randomly? Yeah, I don't know. I want to know who that was, though. <laughs> yeah, somebody got lost <laughs> somewhere. Um, there was a ACS. This I'm just going to just name this real quick because I haven't really researched this enough, but there's an ACS paper showing a mercury sensor for uh, for phones. It's like an app where you can like uh, uh, detect mercury in, uh, say, your water. So uh, you can find that in ACS. There was a nature... Is commu- there still mercury in water, Yost, nowadays? Uh, hopefully not my water. And, Jeez. You know, 
And, uh, yeah, that's really bad for the development of, you know, pregnant moms have oh, to stay God. far away from Mercury. Um, anyway, sorry, sorry. Yeah, uh, Nature Communications again. Uh, yeah, studies showing that adult cells can be converted to epithelial stem cells. Uh, so they uh, made iPS cells into ke- keratinocytes. Um, and then produce hair on mice, but um, that's only one half of what we need to do. So they still haven't been able to make dermal papillae cells for curing balding. So we're almost halfway there, I guess, uh, when it comes to uh, the balding cure. Um, I saw that. I was going to talk about that later. That was interesting. Uh, but you, what, how do they sell that, Yost? Do they sell it as like, is it for burn victims and such, for people who have? Because I imagine, you know, you can't just. As, there's a lot of bald people out there who want to have hair. It's a cure. It's a big business, but for taxpaying dollar purposes, it's probably not a good pitch to the government. So, I mean, there are tremendous disease which result in a lack of hair, right? I mean, I know burn victims lose all their hair. So, wh- where's an application for that? Yeah, I think uh, when you're applying for a grant, you're like, okay, there are all these burn victims. Let's help them out. Versus, uh, there's a bunch of bald men who want to get laid. Let's right. help them out. Exactly. I feel like that's kind of where I always. That's why bald. That's why research on producing hair gets so much press. Yeah. There's so many bald people, but yeah. uh, I, I, for the reasons in the medical field, uh, it's it's not really truly related. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, American Journal of Human Genetics uh, study showing that extremely rare African American Y chromosome. They basically found this extremely rare Y chromosome, which essentially pushed the most recent common human answer ancestor to 338,000 years ago. So that's wow. how old we are. Um, and then uh, there was also a journal of comparative neurology study showing in rats they identified a region in the brain involved in um, basically being lazy versus exercising. It was the rostral, ventral, lateral medulla in rats uh, that exercised for three months versus these lazy rats. And the lazy rats had more sprouty neurons because in this region, the ventrolateral medulla, uh, the rostroventrolateral medulla, uh, they were able, uh, this this basically helps control breathe, breathe, um, breathing and blood pressure in, sympathetic, in the sympathetic nervous system. So um, the lazy rats needed more sprouty neurons to compensate for their couch potato-ness. So, um, couch potato-ness. Yeah. If that's a term. So, uh, and finally, I'll end with uh, a kind of a scary uh, development. Uh, zombie bees have been found in the U.S. Uh, as of uh, January 2014. Oh man, it's only a matter of time before there were zombie bees. Yeah. So it's this. Uh, it's this. Uh, it's a fly called the Apocephalus borealis, which attaches itself to the bee and ejects its eggs in it, and it grows inside the bees and. Turns Turns them into these erratic, jerky, moving like night activity uh, bees that uh, they act oh. like zombies. Yeah, this is the uh, living. Was that uh, show The Walking Dead? Yeah, The Walking Dead of bees. Uh, Dude, they're, they're like the White Walkers from Game of Thrones. Yeah, they, these guys started. It, it was first observed in 2008, but not in America. So it is come into i think uh, the first case was in vermont so watch out for those zombie bees uh, i don't um, know if they make zombie honey but is there any way we can recognize them or are they just kind of like floating or weird in the sky 
I have no idea. I haven't seen video of these zombie bees, but I kind of imagine them in the most like ridiculous way, like in that show Walking Dead. <laughs> is how I imagine these bees. Anthocephalus borealis. <laughs> yes. Risky, yes. man. So Risky. keep a lookout. So that's my uh, science right, wrap-up for this thank week. You, thank you very much. Yeah. So let's let's get into my piece here. Let's just get it out of the way, Yos. Okay, the first paper we're going to talk about is the one that got all the press. And for everyone out there, if you're in the stem cell world, you know about it. If you're not, you know about it um, because it's just made it major headlines. And this is a paper, uh, Stimulus-Triggered Fake Conversion of Somatic Cells into Pluripotency by uh, Charles Vacanti from, uh, from Boston, I think it's Harvard. And there was a collaboration with a Japanese group, Masayuki Yamato. Now, you hear about, they're called STAP cells. And the headlines in the in the light that press stands for it, what stimulus triggered uh, was it uh, uh, acquisition, acquisition of, of pluripotency. That's it. So, so basically, in the light press, what the what it's been pitched at as you dip you dip some skin cells or you dip some lymphocytes or somatic cells in acid and they'll turn into a pluripotent-like, embryonic-like stem cell. The pH okay. of five point seven. That's the magic pH. So what, what they did really was they just figured they, so, so for everyone, you know, we know that pluripotency is what is basically the characteristic of the embryonic stem cell, right? It can turn into everything, which makes it so great. And then Dr. Yamanaka and uh, Jamie Thompson and such showed that you can take a skin cell and convert it back to an embryonic like cell. You can acquire pluripotency. And the way to do this was, you know, it was really beautiful, and they, they kind of took the genome, and they took genes from an embryonic-like cell, and they put them into a non-embryonic-like cell, and boom, it converted it. It was really cool, scientifically what, uh, cool. Now, in, in this study, what they did was they took a somatic cell, I think it was a lymph, purified lymphocytes, uh, and they, this is a mouse, and they put it in a lower pH, like a, like a bath, lower pH. And what that did was it, it made it acquire pluripotent-like characteristics. And then they went on to show through, through, uh, um, through a series of experiments that, in fact, what they were, were they created pluripotent cells. They injected them into uh, mouse blastocysts. They con- contributed to chimeric embryos and offspring, which is kind of the hallmark they also made the extra embryo, ah, extra embryonic endoderm, right? The the yep. yeah, extra embryonic tissues like the placenta. They contributed to the placenta stuff that even IPS cells don't do, right? So basically, right. So what they're saying exactly? Well, the, so what they're saying here is that what they'd be able to do is they're able to just by stressing a somatic cell via, in this case, acid or lower pH, I should say, you can acquire pluripotency. Now, obviously, that's that has remarkable, um, you know, remarkable implications because there's no genetic material being used. It's very cheap and it's scalable uh, for 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 therapeutic com- for co- you know companies in biotech looking to use this pluripotent technology. Wait, this uh, was done in mouse, though. We should say this is done in mouse. Now, I will. So, so, so that was that. Got a lot of press. I just read an article that uh, came out that said that these guys already have it done in humans uh, and human system. And so that you should probably, you'll probably see that coming soon. They always publish the mouse first and then go to human second. Um, so that's coming soon. Now, look, uh, I read the paper. I thought it was a good paper. I thought some of the pictures were a little, little, you know, not up to my par. However, uh, they do do some stringent assays you know, that chimeric embryo is, is a serious assay there. 
if you generate offspring via germline transmission, you, you know, that's a pretty, pretty, you know, it's pretty good solid evidence. Um, I think, Yosef, what happens here is people will try to reproduce this and then the proof will be in the pudding. And if it is reproducible and it is, in fact, robust, then I think we have a really awesome new way to generate pluripotent cells. Yeah, I mean, it took five years to come out, and uh, she was rejected multiple times. And But at the end of the day, she convinced Sasai, and convincing him is, yeah, that's good enough for me. But uh, I don't know. Um it's is it gonna they say that it's it works with other cell types besides uh blood cells that you know uh even though they didn't show the data um apparently this works in all sorts of cells by it kills off other cells and what's left are these like you know cells that revert back it's it's pretty fascinating, but then at the same time, I, you know, when that came out, I was getting all sorts of text messages from friends. They were like, "Oh, making fun of basically the whole field." Like, "Oh, I just dropped some of my cells into yeah, some, I know. I know. dropped I my cells, yeah, dropped my <laughs> cells into some diet coke, and bam, I got my own stem cell line." <laughs> it's like, well, you know what? I'll say this. You know, yeah, we can make you. This holds up, right? I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And you know what it does, though, for me, though? It takes a little bit of the beautifulness, if that's not, and that's, I know that's not a word, away from the whole idea of reprogramming, right? That you could, you know, it's so, so cool and beautiful how they did the initial reprogramming with the genes. And the, and now it's just like, hey, yeah, you lower the pH, you got it. You know? Yeah, like, uh, uh, yeah. before it was like you needed the magic wand of whatever, know. you know, the, the Omsk genes. And now it's like, okay, just some Diet Coke and human ES media or whatever, ES media, and you've got a stem cell line of your own. It's just, uh, I don't know. Uh, but then again, right, look at penicillin. I mean, things things happen in the lab true. sometimes. That's true. And you never know where they'll go. So congratulations to them. It got yes. a, a, a lot of press. And uh, that oh. uh, guy, Vacanti, wasn't even really in the stem cell world. Just kind of exploded onto the scene. So, uh, you know, welcome aboard there. Congratulations. And, yeah, hopefully it'll translate to humans very soon. Uh, so the next thing I got here is a new method uh, which will increase the supply of embryonic stem cells. This is in Nature Communications. Man, look at us. Uh this is called clonal culturing of human embryonic stem cells on laminin uh, five two one cadhedron matrix in a defined xenofree environment. So, new embryonic stem cell lines are typically made from a surplus of uh, in vitro fertilized embryos. So you have IVF. Women go to IVF that are trying to get pregnant. They 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 make a whole bunch of fertilized embryos. They when you implant, say when you say IVF, that's in vitro fertilization. In vitro fertilization, and so they implant they implant a bunch, and if the woman becomes pregnant, the rest that are left over or do not survive, um, you know, they can use those to generate lines. And it has been illegal in the U.S. to use this method for deriving embryonic stem cell lines. Okay, this study is done in the Karolinska. All right, uh, and Sweden's legislation has been more permissive. It has been possible to generate these ES cell lines from excess uh, early IVF embryos with the permission of the donors. Okay, so if there is extra, right, you go, it's your eggs, you're paying the money, you have extra, if it's your permission, they can make a stem cell line from them, which I agree with. Not in this country, can't do that. But I, if it's my eggs and it's my stuff, I, can, I, can, I should have a say in that, right? So that's what they do. Now, this research team is led by, let me see his name, Dr. Carl Trigvasen, he's the uh, he's at the Karolinska. All right, what what they found this is really cool. So you get that you get that eight cell stage really early on, which is really super totally potent. What they can do is 
during the process of IVF, they can take a single cell out of there. PPG? They can take a, say it again. PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Yes. Right? And what they know is that that one cell will not affect the embryo. So they can take one cell out, and then then that embryo still is viable. So they can still continue to freeze it down and use it to put inside of a woman, and, and she'll get pregnant and grow into a healthy child. Yeah, I think it was Robert Lanz's group that first described that. Uh, so what together. they're doing now is they're they're making they're taking. But the problem is cult- culturing those single cells has been ridiculously difficult. Okay, because it's one cell; it's very young, and they're now able to do that on this uh, bed of human laminin, uh, and they're able to propagate new lines. So they think they're going to have a, a new method that's that's going to be more readable. So no no fibroblasts, no mouse embryonic fibroblasts, no mouse. No, I mean this is a it says a clinic. It says a defined uh, environment on human laminin protein. Wow, that's great because I heard vetronectin's done, and uh, they, they, there aren't many well-defined sticky stuff out there. I mean, uh, it's crazy. Well, this is a particular one. It's a. Uh, uh, let's see, it's laminin 521. Uh, maybe we should try to get some of that, Yost, and try it out in the lab, man. Yeah, because uh, there needs to, I mean, right now a lot of people are using Matrigel, but that's the antithesis of being defined. And Matri- um, Yeah, Matrigel is like a tumor exploded in your dish. <laughs> yeah. <what> you're <laughs> but you know what? Everybody uses it still. And they, well, the cells love it. So uh, uh, as long as, as long as they stick to the ground, we can uh, do stuff to them. If they're flowing around doing crazy stuff and falling off the dish, we can't really change their media or do anything uh, too exotic. So yeah, that'd be great. Uh, So so that was cool. I thought that was interesting. So So let me roll through a couple, like two or three more primary articles. These are from stem cell reports and then we'll get into what we'll have Sean jump on. So, uh, the first one, these are in stem cell reports. This is this uh, new uh, open access journal by Cell Press and ISSCR. It's called Small Molecule Induction Promotes Corneal Epithelial Cell Differentiation from Human IPS Cells. So uh, the cornea, you know, in front of the eye, uh, corneal transplants and generating corneal tissues are very in the therapeutic. And so this group, uh, let's see, Healy Scottman uh, is the last author. This is uh, in Finland. Um, uh, so let's see, they took human IPS cells and they did a, um, two, they used two small molecule inhibitors in combination with FGF, uh, and these serum free again and theta free conditions. And then they caused differentiation and then they were able to bring it down. So pluripotency exit, that's the first phase. And then they had, uh, transcription factors being upregulated for eye development and then they get this drastic upregulation of P63, 95% pure. And P63 is a marker of the corneal epithelium. And so then they're, they can take it a step further and can mature the corneal epithelium so they can get sheets of kind of cornea epithelium. That's pretty cool. That'll have a really, really uh, big implication for cornea therapies in the eye. Mm. Eyes where it's at, man. Everyone's on the eye. I, I don't even know. I, I I scratched my cornea when I was a kid, and I remember just like sitting at the computer screen with a big patch on my eye and being like, "Oh, this sucks." But like, what? I isn't cornea like a clear sort of? I picture it like this clear film of. It's like a tissue. transparent. It's the transparent part of the eye that covers the iris and everything. And uh, they're able to make that in a dish. I, I, it's the epithelium layer. I mean, do you know what? I don't really understand it quite much. I'm not an eye. I feel like the eye is a, um, wait, let's see here. Corneal epithelium is a multicellular epithelial tissue layer, 
Um, that kept it's kept moist with tears. And uh, let's see, the corneal disrupts the smoothness of the air, so it's made up of corneal epithelium. Yeah, so that's really what it is. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, this is really cool. Uh, this is a this is by the, out of the lab of the senior author is Guoping Fan or Fan, and they are at the. It looks like here there's some group. There's a China. Uh, let me see. Yep, this is the uh, University of Cal- California, Los Angeles, the UCLA, and out of, uh, let me make sure, in Shanghai, Shanghai Translational Stem Cell Center in Tongji Hospital. And so the, the name of this is A Panel of CPG Methylation Sites Distinguishes Human Embryonic Stem Cells and Induced Pluripotent Stem Cells. So for a while, um, you, know, you know, they've been talking about are they different? You know, is an IPS cell different than ES? And quite frankly, for me, I've always been in the camp of, like, I don't necessarily care. You know, like, if it's good and it works, it's fine. But there's been, obviously, for for further characterization of biological sense, people want to know what distinguishes the two. And so this group found, uh, pretty interestingly, that there are 82 DNA methylation sites that distinguish IPS from ES cells with extremely high accuracy. Okay, wow. so um, they did 114 IPS lines and 155 ES lines, or something like that. Or they let's say they analyzed DNA methylation patterns in a large number of IPS cells. Sorry, uh, and ES cells. Uh, they must have done different lines. I'd have to go through, and they identified a panel of 82 methylation sites that distinguish them. They show that 12 of the 82 were subject to hypermethylation. Which, uh, in general, we should say is like the, when you have methylation in a promoter region of a gene, it tends to turn it off. So this is like blocking off certain gene, like roadblocks in the genome, right? Or speed bumps at the very least. Now, methylation would turn it on, right? Mm, I thought it was well, acetylation. I guess it depends on where. I guess it depends on where. You know, there are different sites of methylation and such. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's like K327 methyl and K4 methyl. It depends yeah. on certain marks. Are K4 prone. is on lysine. When we say K, that's the uh, symbol for lysine. Yeah, those are on the histones, though. But on uh, the, the promoter, the CPG islands, uh, I thought it was off. but I could True, be true, true, yeah. true. You're right. You're right. Um, um, and so anyway, so they think that there is this aberrant hypermethylation and they go into a little bit of a, a mechanism. And so what they say is that there, you can distinguish the two. It's almost like, you know, if you're trying to pick them out of a lineup and you, you can look for these DNA methylation sites and that should tell you whether you're IPS or ESL. So cool. pretty cool. Yeah. Um, let's see. And the, these are all stem cell reports. And then. Uh, this is cool, Yos. I thought you liked this. This is in vivo targeting of adult neural stem cells in the dentate gyrus by a split Cree approach. Now, I don't know what the hell split Cree is. <laughs> I've never know. heard of it before. So I'm going to have to read this in more detail. But basically, this is out of the lab of Magdalena Goetz oh, uh, nice. in Germany. And so we know that there are adult stem cells that live in the, in the brain. Um, and they in the hippocampus, they sit in a region called the dentate gyrus. And so... What they saw using this approach is prominent one is expressed in radial and non-radial neural stem cells in the adult hippocampus. So what they did was they did this split Cree-based genetic fate mapping, and they looked at the double positive cells. They looked at prominent one positive and GFAP positive neural stem cells. Now, GFAP positive have been the traditional marker of neural stem cells in the adult. And what they found is that uh, that this fate mapping revealed that the double positives – are the long-term neurogenic lineage, okay? 
so that if you have, uh, if they, you know, if they exist, if you have a prominent one positive and a GFAP positive cell in the gyrus, that's going to be a stem cell that's going to produce a long-term neurogenesis. Um, and so they did this in, uh, let's see, they, they say they also exist in the adult human, so they see it in the adult human. Uh, and so the data, together with the previous evidence of such double positive cells in the mouse brain, uh, suggests that this prominent one minus and GFAP expressing cells are neural stem cells in a Y. So, so basically oh, what so, they did. So no they, prominent is, uh, plus GFAP is, is the true neuro, neural stem cell? So what they're saying here is that, um, yeah, so no, it's saying that both the double positive are the long term uh, you know, the long-term neurogenic lineage of neural stem cells. Okay. So you have like these subpopulations and if you get a double positive, these are the cells that are going to give you that long-term neurogenic effect throughout the life. So, uh, that's, that's pretty, and that's in, that's in, uh, uh, believe they did that in, in human, they have evidence for that in the humans. So that's well, pretty, pretty they painful. didn't do, they didn't do any split Cree in humans. <laughs> no, 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 they didn't, but they found evidence that there's a double positive cell in the human. So yeah, just to like cool. extrapolate the data into the, I hope they didn't do split Cree. That's in cool. Movie. Yeah. Cree is a tool that, uh, we use to fate map cells because it could combine with the genome and sort of permanently mark. Uh, the cells by excising regions of the genome and either turning on or turning off genes. It's, it's a way we manipulate the genome. Uh, um, last two things. They're interviewed, uh, and the new scientist, they interviewed Masahayo Takahashi from the Riken Center, Riken Center De- Development Bio in Kobe, Japan. Uh, she's a head, she's a head of a lab for retinal regeneration, and they are going to clinical trial, the first human trial of iPS cell-based therapy this year. For Mac Degen. Yeah, so you mentioned it before. Yeah, they did an interview with her. It's really, really interesting. They talk about how IP, what IPS cells are, what's the potential, who's participating. She mentions that there are six people that all have macular degeneration in their eyes, uh, and they're going to replace the damaged section of RPE with the cells created uh, from the IPS cells. So this is just an article highlighting the fact that we are going to clinical trial in this world with IPS cells this year, and that's... Uh, That'll be in Japan by uh, Takahashi Group. Uh, let's see. And then finally, you know, I'm just bringing this up because I saw my, you know, whenever my father, my family brings stem cell news to me, I, I'm, I'm like, oh, you know, like what's going on here? And so there was this on, I think I saw it on ABC and now I aired it on CB, CBS. So there is this, there's this doctor in at NYU and they have this new uh, MS trial that's about to start. Have you seen this, Yos? Um, MS trial? No. So basically, um, what they're doing, so MS is a horrible disease. It could be really severe in a lot of patients and there's really just not much that can be done. It's, it can be rather crippling. It's multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis. Thank you. So what they're doing is they take bone marrow and then they turn it into neurons or they don't, they just kind of put the bone marrow cells into, you know, to this the area where they need remyelination, right? You know, you know, your your axons are kind of wrapped up in myelin, and that goes bad in MS. You lose your insulation, so they're going to put these in to help remyelinate. And the evidence I was looking at his publications uh, shows that these bone marrow cells can turn into neurons, and so that's how they that's how they propose it's working. And they're doing this to see the primary goal is safety. Uh, but they're hoping to be, you know, have some efficacy. Um, I bring this up because 
there's two sides to this, yo. So we always talk about this. There's the side of the patients who are in these extreme pain and extreme conditions that I could only imagine that are looking for really, really, they're looking for any sort of help. And then there's a scientist who's trying to help. And Yosef and I have this debate a lot of whether we should be, how cautious you should be. Uh, someone's got to push it forward and someone's got to be a pioneer, but there has to be safety involved. And that whole field of bone marrow into neural and neurons has been kind of questioned for a long time. And I don't necessarily think that the benefit of bone marrow stem cells has to be turning into the cell type. They could just be secreting stuff, right, that's helping. And so I just urge everyone out there, before you get involved with any trial or anything, just make sure you look it up, talk to some scientists and see what you, you know, so you know what's going into your body. Uh, um, on, and Because I, I know, I could imagine, Joseph, that you're, you're willing to do anything when you get to a certain point. Uh, and so this is going to go on. This is going to happen in, in this country. It's in New York. Uh, and so you applaud him for moving things forward. And I hope these patients participating do get some get some relief and some benefit. Uh, and you can go online if you you can. I I, I kind of did stem cells and CBS News, and it popped up. So take yeah, a look on there. Yeah, we've had this debate before, I guess, with like some of the uh, clinical trials for making oligodendrocytes in the past, and for spinal cord injury. And I was more of the as long as the ball is being moved forward, I, even if it's not ready for prime time, it's a good thing. But yeah, it's it's a debate in the field, and um, I've seen some very. I mean, in China, I saw. I think it was Dan Rather reports. Uh, they basically showed some of these like boutique uh, services where they charge an arm and a leg, put you up in a hotel, and then inject stem cells into the spinal cords of, uh, you know, people, uh, who are wheelchair bound and desperate. And, um, it's, it's really not ready for prime time, especially that sort of, uh, surgery. But, uh, you know, if it's done in America with an FDA approval, uh, that, that particular case was in China. So at least, um, I don't know what their system is there, but I, I, I know that the FDA is very, very rigorous. Well, um, you know, in this case, it's bone marrow, and it's their own cells going into their own body. So they have that, and it's, you know, bone marrow has been around for a while. It's established. And so um, I guess that's really the premise that this is operating under. So we'll see. And, and they, they have a bunch of patients enrolled. So like I said, if anything comes from this, I, I you know, I hope it's safe. Obviously, I hope it's safe, but I hope that the patients will get uh, some relief because I, I can only imagine what, what it's like and to go through something like that. So I will, uh, I'll end it there, my man, and we shall move on. All right, Chris. So why don't you bring on our guest? All right, Yosef. So, uh, uh, in the stem cell world, if I can quote Anchorman, our guest today is kind of a big deal. And, uh, this is cool for me, Yosef, because when I was a graduate student, um, my work was closely related to his. And so I grew up kind of, if you will, in the science world, reading all his papers and learning a tremendous amount from his lab. So, uh, without further ado, our guest today is Dr. Sean Morrison from the University of Texas Southwestern, UT Southwestern, I will say. Uh, Sean holds the positions of professor and director of the Children's Medical Center Research Institute at UT Southwestern, or CRI, the Mary McDermott Cook Chair in Pediatric Genetics at UT Southwestern Medical, and Sean is also a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. Uh, so in addition, he is the principal investigator for the Hammond Lab for Stem Cell and Cancer Bio at CRI, where his lab um, looks at the mechanisms that are regulating stem cell function 
uh, in both the nervous and hematopoietic systems. We've talked about both those on the show. Uh, and interestingly, look at ways in which those mechanisms kind of go wrong or kind of get taken over, if you will, in a situation like cancer. Um, Dr. Morrison is a recipient of numerous, numerous awards, including a Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers uh, and a Merit Award from the National Institute of Aging. And his lab just is, a, is continues to lead away in elucidating these mechanisms of stem cell self-renewal, um, something that's really interesting to me in my lab. Uh, and Joe, we'll just put this in perspective for our viewers. I was looking at this since March 2013. Uh, Sean's group has published five papers in Nature, three primary articles and two reviews. So pretty fantastic. And it's great that I can say, Dr. Sean Morrison, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Sure, happy to be here. I'm surprised you even got through all the titles, let alone the papers. <laughs> I know. I wanted to make sure I got them down because... <laughs> Did you make... practice beforehand? <laughs> I have it written out in front of me, that's for sure, because I just wanted to make sure I, I got them. I think I, I think I did a good job. I might have pronounced the things wrong, but I think I got them. But um, no, so thank you for coming in. So let's let's jump right in here. So I guess we'll just have you start. Just give a little background on how how you got into the field of stem cells in your research world, and then, you know, where you bring it to speed today and what, what you and your lab are, are focusing on uh, your research. I guess I've now been working on stem cells for uh, over 20 years. Uh, it's all I've ever done. So once stem cells aren't cool anymore, I'll be out of a job. <laughs> I think it'll be all. cool for a while. <laughs> I hope so. We'll see if we can keep it that way. I hope so. So I started working on stem cells as a graduate student. I was a graduate student with Irv Weissman at Stanford and uh, initially tried to resist working on stem cells, tried to work on T-cell development, but um, kind of made some serendipitous observations in the course of proving that the T-cell project wasn't going to work, uh, where I discovered a marker markers that made it possible for the first time to distinguish long-term self-renewing from uh, transiently reconstituting, uh, long-term self-renewing hematopoietic stem cells from transiently reconstituting multipotent progenitors. And that was a big deal at the time because Irv's lab had just published um, the, the paper on isolation of hematopoietic stem cells in 1988. So this was three or four years later. And um, one of the big questions at the time, we they, they had come to realize that some stem cells reconstituted long-term and some only reconstituted transiently. And the big question was, were these really different cells or was it a stochastic phenomenon where the same cells were landing in different places? And so the discovery of markers that allowed us to distinguish these populations for the first time proved that those really were different cell populations. And, and it led to being able to purify hematopoietic stem cells with greater precision, and that made it possible to study a lot of the aspects of the biology. And I, in part, I was in the right place at the right time because the lab had, um, had purified uh, um, or you know, greatly enriched blood-forming hematopoietic stem cells from the bone marrow, um, but uh, a lot of the other contexts where we knew that stem cells existed hadn't really been worked out yet, and so... Um, I was able to isolate them from the fetal liver, from mobilized peripheral blood, various contexts. It was a really productive time. Wow, that's really cool. Now, I'm curious, Sean, back back, back in, in that day in lab, I've, I've always wished I could uh, kind of 
migrate back in, back in time and laboratory life because I feel that we've come up in this age of kits and kind of spoiled little, you know, the tricks we can do. And I'm imagining to study, to study markers and to look at these markers you were speaking of, what was the techniques like back then to, to identify these markers? Yeah, I think of now, like, you know, the BD has these, you know, plates <laughs> full of markers. You just throw your cells on and the marker will come up. So, I mean, they didn't have those then. So tell me a little about the techniques there, is, is, you know, that, that, that were being used in the lab at that time. Well, in terms of the antibodies, you know, we were just uh, trying every antibody that we could get our hands on. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the Hertzenbergs were downstairs, and they had lots of antibodies, and the Weissman lab had lots of antibodies. And there have been quite a lot of antibodies made over the years by people in the Weissman lab or that had trained in the Weissman lab. And um, I don't know the people in my lab, you know, are horrified when I say this, but, uh, you know, I used to conjugate my own antibodies, and it was like making crack because you could conjugate $50,000. You know, at the prices that BD and other companies were charging for the antibodies, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd conjugate milligram quantities. And I could conjugate $50,000 worth of antibodies in a morning. Wow. And, and uh, actually, you know, if you did it right, you could make them brighter than, than the ones that were available otherwise. And, and that really made a difference. And so there were times where I would, you know, conjugate years worth of antibody and then, uh, and, and, you know, and then use it for years to come. Wow. And um, they didn't uh, have fax technology then. So how were you isolating cells? Well, now, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Holy cow. <laughs> Yeah, no, we were um, we were using one of the original uh, flow cytometers that had been made in the Hertzenberg laboratory, and this thing was held together with rubber bands and bubble gum and, you know, all the components. It wasn't like everything was in a, a smooth, shiny box like it is now. These were, these were metal racks with all different components wired together. It was... Uh, it was uh, it was quite an operation, but it but it worked clearly, and it worked you, really got, well. Got you to where you needed to be, that's for for sure. And so then, so then, Sean, after that, right, you did went on to do postdoc with with David Anderson. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so you know, I always tell uh, people that um, you want to work on something different as a postdoc, but it's useful to carry something with you that you bring to the postdoctoral project that you think will give you an opportunity to you know, do accomplish something that other people in the field uh, weren't accomplishing. And so at the time, in the mid-90s, uh, people had come to realize, partly as a result of, of Sally Temple's work, that there were neural stem cells, um, but we still didn't really know much about their properties. And the thing that um, – one of the things we learned conceptually from the hematopoietic system was that – is that once it became possible to prospectively identify stem cells in vivo and purify them from uncultured tissue, uh, that's when you could directly study their properties and there would be an explosion in, in the understanding. And so I moved to David Anderson's laboratory with the goal of taking the approaches that I had used in the hematopoietic system to purify hematopoietic stem cells and applying them to the nervous system. Uh, to try to purify neural stem cells and be able to transplant them between animals uh, and see how much we could learn about the biology of the cells. And when I first started in David's lab, I was trying to purify central nervous system stem cells from the subventricular zone, again, based partly on Sally Temple's work and Arturo Alvarez-Buya, um, and uh, was an utter failure. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, in my first year of postdoctoral work, it turned out that 
that I was I effectively pursued a total artifact where the cells that I was growing out in culture weren't neural stem cells at all, and wow. uh, it was a it was a total disaster. And I thought that um, I had no future in science, even though you know the, the graduate work had gone really well and I published lots of papers. But um, I figured I was going to end up a landscaper in Los Angeles, <laughs> which I think I could have done really well. Well, I, well, we could say for all you students and postdocs out there, you see, it's not everyone that goes through these horrible research years. I think if Sean went through one, and look where he is today, so that that's hopeful, I guess. <laughs> you know, the nice thing about science is that we're all one nature paper from redemption. Yeah. This is true. This and, is quite true. Uh, and it's amazing how fast things can happen, can change, because, you know, after after my first year in the Anderson Lab, I had accomplished nothing. And um, uh, and then I switched the focus from purifying central nervous system stem cells to purifying neural crest stem cells, and it worked immediately. Um, trying to purify neural crest stem cells, and so I, you know, I went from this project that was going nowhere to a, a project that was very productive, and kind of in the middle of it, University of Michigan contacted me and started recruiting me to a faculty position based on what I had done as a graduate student. And so I went from, you know, contemplating a career in the landscaping industry to all of a sudden, you know, looking at faculty positions uh, in just a matter of months. And, uh, and, you know, the funny thing, though, was when I, when I first interviewed at Michigan, I still hadn't accomplished anything as a postdoc. I'd only been in David's lab for a year and a half. And uh, it wasn't really clear at that point whether the Neural Crest project was going to work out or not. But, you know, it takes some number of months as you go through the process. And I, I didn't want to just immediately accept the offer at Michigan, so I went around and looked at other places. And by the time I got to the, the second visit at Michigan, uh, Gary Nabel, who was recruiting me, kind of nervously asked me at one point, you know, how the postdoc was going <laughs> and was I actually <laughs> accomplishing anything. And fortunately, at that point, there was a paper and press itself. So there you go. Awesome. Nice. And so then you went you went over to Michigan to start your career. That was when, Sean? What what year was that? That's 99. 99. Okay. Yeah. And so then you started your lab there basically uh, going off of the building off of the work then from David's lab because you 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 you, always, you you still kind of go use both systems, correct? The nervous system that's, and the wedding. That's right. And that was the plan from the beginning because in the late 90s you know, people had just realized that there were stem cells in a lot of different tissues, and, you know, they all had cell renewal potential, and most of them were multipotent. People were starting to realize that there were, or speculate at least, that there were conserved stem cell regulatory mechanisms in different tissues. But, you know, because everyone had... Every, almost everyone in the field, you know, was a hematologist that was trained to study hematopoietic stem cells or a neurobiologist trained to study neural stem cells people would learn something in their stem cell and then make predictions about how the same thing would be true in other stem cells. But there was really almost nobody at that point that was in a position to carefully test these ideas in more than one stem cell system. And so starting my laboratory, I proposed to go back and forth between hematopoietic and neural stem cells and uh, uh, evaluate the extent to which regulatory mechanisms were, really were conserved among stem cells in different tissues. And I decided to focus on uh, stem cell self-renewal mechanisms because at that point there was, I think it's fair to say, nothing known about stem cell self-renewal mechanisms. You know, I thought that this was the most important question in stem cell biology, that if we could understand how a multipotent cell gave rise to multipotent daughter cells throughout life, that this was a fundamental question in cell biology. 
And, you know, not only did we not know really any self-renewal genes at that point, we didn't even know what kind of genes would regulate stem cell self-renewal. We didn't know how to look for them. We weren't sure what the assays were. We didn't know if there'd be a lot of genes or just a few genes. You know, it seems crazy to say that now, but it really was the case. And in fact, when I proposed initially, you know, writing my initial grants to study stem cell self-renewal mechanisms, I didn't really believe we knew how to do it or that we would succeed. Hmm. Um, but fortunately, science is like the Nike commercial where if you just do it and you, uh, <laughs> you try to do it more carefully than other people had or at least look more closely, then you always see things um, you know, that, uh, that people didn't see before. And you know, we were able to work out assays and uh, discover a series of key regulators of stem cell self-renewal. Wow, that's some great background. Now, um, jumping into the, the topic of this uh, podcast, the cancer stem cell, what, uh, can you maybe give us some background or what, what the state of the theory or if it's been proven at this point, uh, what we're talking about what, when we say cancer stem cell? Well, the, first of all, the cancer stem cell idea uh, refers to um, cancers that have a hierarchical organization in which uh, there are both tumorigenic and non-tumorigenic cancer cells. So the idea is that in some cancers, just like in normal tissues where there are stem cells that give rise to diverse differentiated cells that have limited uh, proliferative potential, that there may be a, a process akin to differentiation in some cancers in which there are tumorigenic cancer stem cells that are largely responsible for the growth and the progression of cancer, but which give rise to larger numbers of, um, for lack of a better term, differentiated cancer cells uh, that have limited proliferative potential. Um, this idea, you know, people often think of this as a new idea, but this idea was prominent in the, uh, in the literature back in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, but at that point, uh, the key experiment that you have to do to distinguish tumorigenic from non-tumorigenic cancer cells is the experiment that we had done as a, as a graduate student uh, with uh, hematopoietic stem cells, where you have to find a marker that will distinguish tumorigenic from non-tumorigenic cell cells, and that's the only way to really prove that those are intrinsically uh, different cell types. Right. Uh, and so at the time, in the 1960s and 70s, there was no flow cytometry technology, and so nobody was able to do that experiment. So the idea floated around, uh, but, but it couldn't really be directly proven, perhaps outside of uh, teratocarcinomas, and so as soon as people, you know, started cloning cancer genes and they realized that there were tumor suppressors and proto-oncogenes and everyone started focusing on the genetic basis of cancer, people forgot about it until John Dick's laboratory showed that acute myeloid leukemias are hierarchically organized and there really is a leukemia a leukemia stem cell population that can be distinguished based on marker expression from non-leukemogenic cells. Uh, and then uh, Mike Clark's laboratory in, um, in the early 2000s, uh, who was involved in recruiting me to Michigan, his laboratory published evidence showing that it wasn't just leukemia, that uh, breast cancer also follows cancer stem cell model. And so this made the idea start seeming much more generalizable than people had prior to that. And so now, of course, there's been many papers published, um, uh, some really good, some really bad. And, uh, and you know, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing still how little we know, actually, because, 
it's, it's clear now that some cancers really do follow a cancer stem cell model. It's clear that some other cancers really don't follow the model, that you know, there's, there's not a clear hierarchical organization. There's many cells that are capable of driving disease progression. And we don't know exactly what fraction of cancers fall in each category. We don't know if there's some minority of cancers in which you know, differentiation tends already to be evident. Uh, that follow the cancer stem cell model, or whether there's actually a substantial fraction of cancers that follow the model. I, lo- I love the way you laid it out there because it, it does get confusing because, you know, what what is cancer? It's, it's uncontrolled cell growth, uh, usually caused by some mutation, right? And then with stem cells, we like to think of it as, you know, controlled growth, but it is kind of, I mean you put them there they just grow on their own if you give them the right media so it gets confusing as okay stem cells do this they grow and produce other cell types whereas cancers do the same thing or not <laughs> depending yeah. on the cancer so it, it gets a little confusing and this whole cancer stem cell controversy quote unquote uh, arose and uh, scientists such as yourself and uh, Dr. Dick and Dirk I believe as well have really uh sort of tease this apart and given a more uh, definitive definition um, of what this controversy is. So, uh, well, well, I mean, I guess I would also just add too, Sean, is that I feel that that term cancer stem cell, and I've, I've spoke with a lot of cancer biologists on this, you know, you can get into some sort of semantic or philosophical argument about really is there a stem cell there or not? How do you define a stem cell always comes into play? But I think for the, for the topic here, for the, everybody out there listening, some who may not be, uh, uh, you know, hardcore stem cell biologists, you know, we talk about this pro- property of self-renewal, which I, with, with, which I share that, that kind of fascination, uh, Sean, is that this ability to make more of yourself. And if you just think about that property, like Yosef mentioned, it does just speak to a disease like cancer. Because if there is a cell, whether it's a true stem cell or not, but it does have that capability of propagating long term and keep re- repopulating itself, obviously that's not a good situation for um, some sort of disease, especially when you're trying to target it and destroy that cell. If you, I guess the theory is, right, if you leave that stem cell behind, one or two, then in theory, at some point, it could re-kind of pop up and start dividing and, and take over again. So I guess that's kind of really the heart of this, right? That, that if there is that cell in there that has that ability to repropagate, that's where your problem will come from. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, you know, there's a number of difficulties here. Uh, one is that um, people often use this term cancer stem cell so promiscuously that it's often difficult to uh, figure out what people are talking about. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we always knew that cancer cells could proliferate extensively and, uh, and you know, form tumors, and yet there's a tendency right now for people to want to rename any clonogenic cancer cell a cancer stem cell. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the surprise here is not that um, cancer cells can form tumors. The surprise here is that in some cancers, some cancer cells can't form tumors, and to show that the cancer stem cell model is relevant to a cancer, you have to show that there's some substantial subpopulation of cancer cells within that tumor that lack the capacity to proliferate extensively. And, of course, if that's true, it has implications for how you go about treating the cancer because you better make sure that whatever therapy you're using at least has an opportunity to kill the actual tumorigenic cells. 
Wow. Um, great. I mean, that that's, uh, I guess, some great background into your lab and uh, what you're studying. Can you maybe give us some uh, insights into uh, the more, most recent publications or what you have uh, baked in the cake for the future? Well, um, I like that baked in the cake there. You haven't <laughs> used that one lately. I like that. Sorry. Go ahead. We, you know, we still go back and forth between neural stem cells and hematopoietic stem cells, studying cell renewal mechanisms and the way in which those mechanisms get hijacked by cancer cells in the same tissue. Um, and I guess where we stand right now with respect to understanding cell renewal is that there are two general possibilities. One possibility is that stem cells differ from other cells primarily based on executive control, where there's some group of transcription factors and epigenetic regulators that distinguish stem cells from other cells, but that many other aspects of cellular physiology are essentially housekeeping functions that are you know, done similarly in stem cells and, and versus other cells. The other general possibility is that to create a stable, self-replicating, multipotent state, that there are many aspects of cellular physiology that have to be different in stem cells as compared to restricted progenitors, and that many aspects of cellular physiology that we currently think of as housekeeping functions are not housekeeping functions at all. These things are very highly regulated and that have to be different in a stem cell. And, you know, we don't know the extent to which that's true because um, a lot of aspects of cellular physiology just haven't been studied in stem cells yet because we don't have the techniques to be able to do it. You know, if, if you want to study... Uh, metabolomics or protein synthesis or things like that, you know, all the techniques that people use require tens of millions of cells. Uh, and, so, uh, and so it's difficult to scale down and try to study the small numbers of somatic stem cells that you can really uh, isolate in vivo. And so one of the cool things about starting a new research institute is there's an opportunity to apply deploy resources beyond the scale of a single laboratory and pick problems that you're going to make bets on that could, you know, deliver important results in the next, say, 10 to 15 years. And so one of the things that we're trying to do in my laboratory and uh, in this institute is to develop tools to study aspects of cellular physiology in small numbers of cells in vivo that haven't really been studied before and that we don't really know to what extent they differ between different kinds of dividing somatic cells or different kinds of cancer cells within the same tumor. And then actually, you know, when we can succeed in, in developing the approaches to study it in small numbers of uncultured cells, deploy it in these contexts to try to understand. And my bet is that as, as we develop the ability to study, for example, metabolomics in small numbers of cells, that it's going to completely change the way we think about the sigma wall chart because all of that was worked out by mashing up entire organs. And so we get an average picture across an organ in the same way as, you know, sequencing will give you an average picture across a tumor. And the reality, I bet, this is the hypothesis at least, is that different kinds of cells are metabolically different from each other, that they have to be metabolically coupled to some extent, and that by understanding those differences, we'll uncover a whole world of biology that may regulate development, regeneration, and even perhaps why uh, some cancer cells survive therapy and others don't. 
Yeah, that's great because uh, I think it was in 2008 was when I first started to become uh, aware of your research, and it was uh, that that w- the the paper dealing with hematopoietic stem cells and their integration into these uh, Nodske gamma mice. Um, it was a Nature paper in 2008, uh, Kitana et al. I believe, and I, I remember I was working on uh, putting uh, neural cells into the brains of mice, and here was you described these. Mice that uh, this IL two receptor gamma knockout mice that were even more immunocompromised and accepted uh, these hematopoietic stem cells. I think it was like a thousand or ten thousand fold, and we started to see better integration when we switched over to these more, uh, I guess, immunocompromised mice. And um, for lack of a better term, I called them the Morrison mice for a good two <laughs> well, years. <laughs> I think the paper that you're thinking about, we were actually we did with Mel. Melanoma, yes. where we showed that when we used those NSG mice, that you know, pr- prior to our paper, people had to inject hundreds of thousands or millions of melanoma cells in order to get a tumor, and that had given rise to the idea that there were only rare melanoma cells that could drive disease progression, uh, and, and you know, to the point that some people were proposing that to improve melanoma therapy, we really had to look for agents that would kill rare cells. Um, but as we spent time trying to optimize that transplantation assay and looking at the extent to which changes in assay conditions influence the spectrum of cells that could form a tumor, we could inject fewer and fewer cells. And one of the key changes was switching over to the nod-skid mice. And, and in the end, the postdocs in my lab were able to inject single cells. And uh, we take single cells from patients and 30% on average of the single cells engraft in the mice and form a tumor. And that made an important point in the cancer stem cell literature that there were at least some cancers uh, in which you could get the impression that they had only rare tumorigenic cells, but that modest changes in assay conditions would reveal that, in fact, there was a much broader spectrum of cells that could uh, form tumors. So uh, partly as a consequence of that work, we conclude that melanoma doesn't follow the cancer stem cell model. There are many melanoma cells that are capable of, of uh, driving uh, disease progression. And actually, you know, that paper is you know, now a, high, a highly cited paper. And it was funny, when I was going around um, uh, you know, talking about that work before it was published, somebody at Jackson Laboratory told me that they could track where I was talking about the work because they would get a flood of orders. <laughs> the orders. Be nice uh, <laughs> right after I left town. <laughs> that's great. I love that. <laughs> oh, man, that's really funny. Nice. Uh, well, so, so I guess, you know what, I'm just for the sake of time here, let's – Let's just take a quick departure from the from the actual in the lab research. And you know, you're a great person, Sean, to ask this question of you. Like you said, you've been in the stem cell field for 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 a while now. You've seen it. You've seen it go up and down and back up, and you've seen it really where it sits currently today and where you think it's going to go. I know you're very involved, uh, not just so much in the research of stem cells, but also in the in the world of policy with stem cells. I know you're the, you're currently is it correct? You're currently the vice president of International Society for Stem Cell Research. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, and I know you've 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 been involved in, with other things with the government and so forth and stem cells. So, for, I would just like to get your perspective on um, the field of stem cell, where it sits right now. Um, you know what what its future looks like, and I guess you could tie that into the future of it in terms of a therapeutic. We like to ask uh, guests, you know, where where do you envision kind of the closest 
to home therapeutic uh, would come from from stem cells. If you wouldn't mind just putting putting the field in context where you've seen it, where it is, and then kind of what, what your what your little perspective is on, on on a therapeutic from stem cells and where it sits. Well, it's obviously a really exciting field. It's an exciting field to start your career in because uh, the pie is constantly expanding and there's new opportunities. And, you know, when I started working on stem cells as a graduate student, we thought the field was cool then, but it's only gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's not so many fields that capture public imagination in the way that stem cell research has. Um, So I think there's – I think the future is extraordinarily promising – um, not just in terms of the therapeutic opportunities, but also the opportunities to address fundamental scientific questions. Mm-hmm. Now, um, in terms of what therapy, I always hesitate to answer that question because, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of twists in the plot in this field. And the classic thing is every time somebody discovers something, you know, there's the they appear in the newspaper predicting about how they're going to cure disease X in five to ten years. Yep. Right. Yep. And usually those predictions turn out to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and so I always hesitate to name a particular disease. But, you know, one thing I would say is that. Um, I've done quite a lot of uh, policy work uh, in the in, in the area of stem cell research, and was involved in a campaign in Michigan uh, in 2008 to protect. To ch- actually, we changed the state constitution to protect um, uh, uh, embryonic stem cell research for some, from some some bad legislation. Uh, and you know, so I spend a lot of time in Michigan talking to the general public about stem cell research, and you know what. There, there has been a tendency at times for people to oversell the research by creating the impression in the public that, you know, that cures were right around the corner. So one of the things that I was careful to say during that campaign was, you know, we don't know when the cures are coming and we don't know what diseases are going to be cured. Um, but if we don't get started now in the research, we're never going to get there. And at the time when I was saying that, I was personally skeptical that we were really going to have uh, uh, improved treatments for things like spinal cord injury and heart failure uh, from stem cells. And I have to say that I have been shocked at um, the the exciting preclinical data that have emerged in those and other areas and how there's really a proliferation of new therapies in the pipeline, in some cases for, you know, niche conditions that affect relatively small numbers of patients. In other cases, you know, major public uh, health problems where I'm, I'm now, um, you know, usually you get more pes- pessimistic about these things over time as you learn how complicated it is. But this is an area where I'm really getting more optimistic. And I do think there's a real chance that we're going to have stem cell therapies for major public health problems. Excellent, excellent. And uh, finally, uh, I hope we prepared you enough for this. Can you share a funny story, uh, the comic relief uh, phase of the the interview, (laughs) uh, from either your graduate work, postdoc, professorship, uh, anything uh, you'd like to share with our audience? Well, there are many stories, um, (laughs) some of which I can't share to protect the guilty, some of which would be too embarrassing to share. Uh, but so let me just tell you one. Um, soon after I started my lab at the University of Michigan, I was invited uh, by the graduate students uh, at uh, UC Santa Cruz to go out and uh, give a talk about my work. And uh, before the seminar, I had lunch with the students that invited me. And uh, I, I asked them, you know, how many speakers do you guys get to invite each year? And they said, just one, you're it. 
And I said, oh, I feel bad that you guys only get one speaker and, and you didn't get someone better than me. And the guy sitting across from me said, we tried. They all turned us down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, boy. That you got to love that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That's like – at least you didn't get completely rejected. <laughs> Uh, well, listen, Sean, I just want to say uh, on behalf of Yosef and the Stem Cell Podcast uh, fan base and everybody out there, thank you so much for coming on. We, we, um, you know, we really, really, really look forward to having, you know, true pioneers of the field come on and put it in perspective. Um, it, it just really gives a, a, a nice kind of overarching kind of, you know, fit to where it came from, where it is. So uh, we appreciate it, and we really enjoy your work and reading it and, and look forward to uh, talking to you again and, and continue to read your work. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was great talking to you, and thanks for the work that you're doing to make the, the this area of research more accessible to people. All right, great. Thanks, and uh, keep up the advocacy. Uh, everything you're doing with the policymakers and everything, I know it's – Almost like a side project, but you do a great job of it. So, Well, the International Society for Stem Cell Research does a great job, and uh, there's a lot of things in the pipeline that the ISSCR will be doing over the coming years to, to, to make this a better field and more productive field for everybody. And the ISSCR, I guess we should say right now, the registration for the meeting is open, everybody, so go out there and register if you haven't already. Um, we had Dr. Carl Wonders on from ISSCR before. Uh, he talked about it, so go ahead. I'm sure I know Sean will be there. His work will be there. Uh, and uh, thanks again, Sean. Have a, have a good evening, all right? All right. Great talking to you guys. Okay. All right. Take care. Uh, so, Chris, why don't we uh, finish up with an epic little rant here before, so we can wrap all up right, the podcast. Man. That was great. Sean was great. That's, yeah. uh, that's a really cool insight there. Yeah, I look forward to seeing him at ISSCR in Vancouver, not Toronto. In uh, Vancouver, not yeah. Toronto. <laughs> Excellent. All right, man. What are we going to bi about today? Here, this is you know I, I feel like uh, we've had some heavy topics in the past, and I want to lighten up the uh, rants. Light, lighten my load, yo. Uh, actually, it, it deals with light. So, uh, in my <laughs> office, there are uh, we have uh, we're blessed with a beautiful view of New York City, but the sun is just beaming on my computer screen and me. I'm getting a tan at work, and so I go to close the shades. And I'm spending like five, ten minutes just, you know, you, you pull one string and it turns to the right and you got the 90 degree, the 45 degree angle and you're, you're pulling down the other one and then they're getting stuck together. The blinds I'm talking about, this is a rant about blinds. And I'm wondering, you know, how long have we had blind technology since what? The Phoenicians? We, uh, you know, the Phoenician blind. Why do, why can't we figure this out? Why can't there just be blinds that you, you pull them down and it's just, done I, well I, you I, see i don't know man here's the thing so i've come across and they have these blinds which are like room darkening blinds you ever see these things you like pull them down and you're like in a cave type <laughs> blind <laughs> and i feel like that's like a bit much you know it's like you can't find the right balance yeah with I, blinds you, you get that peak and you know what's worse man oh, now you get me fired up the worst <laughs> is when you get a little crack and, and a little stream of light, just like a little fo- – like, it's like a magnifying. A little stream just comes in and gets you, and it's – oh, that's the worst, man. <laughs> I, I totally understand what you're talking about. No. But 
It, it's it, gotten to the point where I have a big black umbrella that I, it's, no, it looks so stupid. I, I have an umbrella, right? Like a uh, covering. I, I just open up the umbrella. I, this is probably why my karma is so bad, I guess, because like I'm opening umbrellas indoors every day. Yeah, because, man, that's not good, right? That's like, uh, that's like breaking a mirror, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I kind of have good karma, but still, yeah, it's wait, just so wait, like, so you have, you have the blinds where you have the, the two, the two, it's the two thing situation. You got the you got the one that pulls it up and down, and you yeah. got the turn guy. Yeah, and both yeah. are just See, the completely. The turn guy sucks, man. That guy's the worst. Yeah. You, I never know if I'm getting it the wrong way. Yeah, and, and then you you go too far, and it does that loyal like speed bump hump where it's just like you you twist uh, it too yeah, far and you reset it. <laughs> so you're looking. Let me let me break you off with a little uh, little knowledge here. They have these blinds, right? They screw into the top of the window, and you just kind of pull them down. You just you pull them up, and then you pull them down. It's nice and easy, smooth. There's no levers and knobs and pulls. You should try that out and see uh, see if that works out for you. But I totally feel you, man. I hate beaming light into my room. It's oh, just not. It's not yeah, a good situation. Yeah, I'll talk to lab ops about it because yeah, it you is, better get lab ops I mean, on that thing. It's even worse that I have a PC, so I could barely already see my screen. It's not like one of those high end, nice Apple screens. So I, I mean, see for you, the, the, this is a whole other story. But it can cause temperature problems because it's too much, too much sun. You start getting hot. You start sweating at your desk. The sun's <laughs> beaming on you. It's, it's a disaster, man. I just find it amazing that it's 2014 and we're still like I have blind issues at at lab. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, how long have we had blinds? I don't. I I assume since the Phoenicians, because that's all I know about them is Phoenician Why? blinds. <laughs> that's. <laughs> So that's my little rant. Why you kept saying that? I was like, why does he keep bringing them up? Phoenician blinds. That's is all it I know. Phoenician or the Venetian? Oh, maybe it is Venetian. I'm an idiot. Sorry, I thought I don't it was know. Phoenician. It could be Venetian blinds, and then then it's like so they're why from Venetian? Venice. Okay. They from Venice. Okay, I have no idea. But right, I thought now, it was now we should just end blinds. this rant. All right, yeah. everybody out there, we're gonna uh, on the on the Venetian Phoenician. Write us. Let us know if it's Venetian or Phoenician. Everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, all right, man. On behalf of uh, Dr. Sean Morrison, uh, Yos. Uh, I think we should sign off and uh, take us out with a little bit of our uh, our music, man. All right, Chris. Take care. All right, man.